0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast about everything going on in the world of PR and communications. I'm your special guest host this week, Frank Washcook, PR Week's executive editor. uh, And my co-host this week is Ewan Larkin, PR Week's corporate reporter. Ewan, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well, Frank. Thanks for having me on. What are some of the big stories you're working on? Let's give our readers a a sneak preview
1: of what they might be expecting. There is quite a few uh, big stories that we're going to be chatting about today. We're going to, I think one that everybody will be interested in is and was kind of dominating the news cycles last week was the service outage at AT&T. We're going to dive into the crisis response there. I spoke with the spokesperson about how they handled it, kind of went behind the scenes a little bit. There's a big uh, CCO appointment at Hormel uh, that we're going to get, we're going to talk through. We're going to chat about Edelman's global revenue last year in 2023. We're going to get into some of the healthcare awards uh, and a bit more. We're going to talk about San Francisco and AI. We've got a we've got a full schedule. Hold
0: oh, on, don't ruin it all. Let's let's save some of it for the end of the podcast, <laughs> you know. Uh So l- looking forward to all that, Ewan. We have a terrific, terrific guest. I'm really looking forward to talking with her this week. It's Dr. Pamela Borland Davis. She's a professor at Georgia Southern University, if I remember right, home of the Eagles. right? right? That's right. All right. So I know you're known as Dr. Pam to your students. So uh, tell us a little bit just about where this, the state of PR and communications education is right now. Um, and and I, I think that somebody, in looking at this from the outside, somebody in a position like yourself, I, I can't imagine all of the different types of media that you have to be talking about with students nowadays with everything from social media to you know the classic media relations, earned media, and all the types of owned media that companies do now. So how do you do it all, and what do you focus on, and what are your students focused on right now?
2: Well, I think part of what has happened is the Commission for Public Relations Education regularly takes a pulse of what practitioners are looking for in our students. And the educators, of course, are staying in touch with alumni and local practitioners and trying to figure out everything. But we recently conducted a study last year, Uh, it was published in November of last year as part of the 50th anniversary of CPRE. And basically the upshot is we expect a lot from our students. Mm -hmm. Uh, They need to know about the core area of public relations, the foundations, the writing, Uh, the different media as you referenced but they also need to know critical thinking they need to know a little bit about data analysis they've got to be writers storytellers they need team experience and they need to be on top of current trends in public relations so it's a lot and we're at this point where we're starting to question whether our students need a master's degree to really launch their career at the highest levels
0: There's so much we can get into here. Now, how does Georgia Southern handle it in terms of of where do the the PR students sit, so to speak? Are they within the communication school? Are they, you know, a stone's throw away from the journalism students or are they totally separate?
2: It's going to depend at the university. At Georgia Southern specifically, we are in a communication arts department where we have communication studies, journalism we also have a multimedia film and production and public relations. So the benefit is that the students can pick up from the other students and learn many things, but we have a multidisciplinary program where our students do take some journalism courses and they do take some communication studies courses, which really ties back to those areas of team building and writing and being able to tell stories in different ways. Uh, The public relations foundation courses are of course, are very important. And we've had a healthy internship program uh, for quite a long time.
0: Where, tell us a little bit about that. Where, where have some of your students interned at?
2: The uh, Georgia Southern is outside of Savannah, so our students intern in Savannah, but many of our students are from Atlanta, so we also have them in Atlanta. We've sent them uh, off to New York and D.C., but predominantly in the state of Georgia, and just what you'd expect from most any place. They're at hospitals, they're at corporations, agencies, nonprofits, Uh, some even intern for the department, helping promote Mm -hmm. things that are going on within the department. What are
0: the major skills that you look for them to really hone during an internship or, or get familiar with how they do it out in the real world, so to speak?
2: It's really a bridge opportunity, right? It's connecting their class to the profession. So in many cases, they're having to figure out what we've talked about in class and how it applies in the practice. And Figure that out. Ideally, they'll come back to class and learn even more because they've seen what's most important. But uh, we especially want them to be getting the writing experience, the storytelling experience, but also to get to know professionals in the field, to know uh, what the ethics and the parameters of proper behavior would be within the office that becomes even more important when you think of so many of our students having been uh through the pandemic right Right. and having uh, online classes and trying to figure all of this out in a very different uh respect as they go into practice
0: figuring out how to buy work pants and all of those those different things (laughs) that you didn't have to do for a few years so um Maybe just walk me through the process a little bit. I mean, where do you expect students to be at, let's say, when they're freshmen by the time they graduate? And what are the skills that you expect them to pick up during the four-year process, assuming, you know, they've picked a major, they're already within the process early? Um, How do you want to see them gradually develop over the four years that they're with you?
2: I think we've expected in the past a lot of critical skill development early on, but as classes get larger and go online, your core courses, I think that's changing. So I think there's greater responsibility at the higher levels to teach more of that. And I think it's just getting that experience, getting involved in the PR agency or getting involved in the workplace through internships. Uh, Those kinds of things become important. But we find that a lot of our classes will use service learning, uh, working Mm. for nonprofits, working for clients as they go. we're really excited about a new move uh, in NIL in helping work with our local athletes who are having to navigate that particular area. So they just develop over time and learn the writing and get greater application of that as they move into the field.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent stuff. One thing I'm always curious about and and how universities handle it, you know, a lot of the top CCOs out there and a lot of the top communications executives, they come out of the politics world and, and a lot of their background is, you know, whether it's campaign politics, uh, or or Capitol Hill aides or or work at the state level, whatever the case is. How much overlap do you have, or do your students have uh, between you know the political science department and 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 your department?
2: It's one of the areas where there could be a minor. Of course, it's a core course that students have to take. There are opportunities to take courses and study abroad, where they can learn about systems and governments in other countries, which can be really helpful for local learning. And then some of the internships will be in public affairs. So governments often have student interns. So there, there is some overlap and they're going to learn that pretty quickly, I suspect, no matter what in the field. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm curious, I'm sure you're in touch with a lot of alumni and and probably a lot of recent alumni. Uh, What do they tell you about, you know, maybe what surprises them or skills that they've had to develop once they've gotten uh, their professional career started?
2: I think most of them respond to us that they had the basics. Now there's going to be application in the local site and certainly the study that we conducted with the commission identified a lot of different things uh, related to being able to ramp up and make that transition into the field. And there, there are any number of different areas. I think one of the surprises from the study was that some of our uh, early career students actually experienced what they uh, it called environment, uh, hostile work environment or sexual harassment. And that was, uh, not expected. Now, that was a low number responding as a new mm-hmm. professional. But I think some of that goes back to that pandemic environment and getting used to the discourse and office politics and understanding yeah. those things. So I, I think, I think the six core standard, which has been developed by the commission, is a great base and. All of our students and alumni are saying that it's helping them make that transition. And as more schools adopt that, and most of them have, we're finding that I think practitioners have a better sense of what to expect when those students come into the workplace or to the internship.
0: You mentioned something before that I want to come back to that I thought was really interesting. And then there are sort of these, maybe you'd call them soft skills, maybe you wouldn't, um, but, but just good judgment and um, critical thinking, and I, I would even put, you know, good writing and editing skills under that, right? Um, all of those things combined, how, how do you get them across? And how, how do you develop those things? Because I think it, it, a lot of people would say, you know, like the ability to write well is so critically important, but they might not necessarily learn that as part of their coursework, right? So um, how, do, how do you get those things across and make them a big part of, of what the students are picking up on?
2: I think one of the study findings was the ethical competencies, that personal behavior, integrity, and accountability were so important. Mm. We face that every day in the classroom with assignments and making sure that students are doing their own work. AI is becoming an increasing concern. We're adding it in and using it in the class, but helping them separate between their own work and somebody else's work that that gets produced. But I think one of the things that benefits us the most is when the practitioners come to the class. Yeah. The practitioners talk about their experiences. We look at case studies and all of those opportunities provide great chances for them to see themselves in the workplace and to see what they would do versus what somebody else might have done.
0: Tell us a little bit more about how you're incorporating AI uh, into the coursework, because that, that is something everybody wants to know more about right now
2: and and that's one of the things i have to learn yet um when you've been teaching for 40 years there's there's a lot that you're still learning right But i do know i've talked to some of the faculty and some other folks in the field and they are doing a number of things they're having uh, students write independently an article but then also producing uh an article via ai and then comparing the two and then trying to um personalize it there are other opportunities for example in campaigns classes to use AI for idea generation and so it's exposing those students to those opportunities and starting to develop those skills within an AI environment
0: what what are they not allowed to use it for
2: uh, to complete to claim it their own work mm. so I I have an assignment that's due and they turn something in that was generated by AI and say that it was their own. So that would be where it would not be allowed. Uh, And obviously within the field, that would cause a lot of problems.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, When I was adjuncting a few years ago, one thing that um, really surprised me and and really that was really helpful for me um, was wrapping my arms around the, the media diet that younger people have today. And, uh, just how social media oriented it is and just how I would consider it non-traditional as somebody who grew up, you know, reading newspapers and, you know, broadcast news and cable, uh, when I was that age, but uh, it, it's very interesting, but it's a very diverse range of places and platforms where people are getting their information from. How is, th- how do you build that into coursework and, and, and how do you build it into the concept of media relations in general?
2: I think one of the most fun things about teaching is always being exposed to new ideas. Mm. So bringing in topics and finding out what they know and where did they know things from. Um, But also teaching them about some basic video, basic audio, basic writing, uh, while integrating it into those different assignments. But in some cases, if I were teaching PR writing, I might have them make a recommended outline of what they would suggest for a client based on that media. And then they would have to adapt uh, their portfolio, if you will, based on the needs. And so it's going to be a representation, but you're right. Sometimes you have to encourage them to access other media sources rather than just what they're seeing on uh, TikTok or what have you.
0: Right, right. It, yeah, because that, and, and I would would fully admit that when I was teaching, that was that was a whole new world to me, and something that took me a long time. And and it was Snapchat then, pre TikTok. But but just how many people were getting news from that at that time, and it was really, um, it was a learning experience for me. Um, talk talk to us a little bit about your alums. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a bunch of them out there at great companies and great agencies. Uh, what's some of the interesting work maybe that you could tell us that that they've been working on or or some success stories?
2: Well, we just had a public relations advisory board meeting in Macon and the Otis Redding Foundation hosted us. So Carla Redding Andrews is one of our alumni. And so it was really super interesting to get to see that, but also see what the Otis Redding Foundation is doing and building things. Uh, We have Janice Watts Hall, who is at the, uh, ADP. We have people at, uh, different agencies and healthcare. We've always tried to make sure that we have different representation. Uh, but those are a couple examples just from the top of my head.
0: Okay. Um, Turning the microscope around for a second, what are what are some of the things you think the industry could do better and maybe education plays a role in it? Um, you know, uh, the things that you think agencies can do better, in-house teams can do better. And maybe sometimes you look at, at that and go, wow, we have to teach this differently or we have to look at it differently as well. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's probably like the story of the doctor being his own Medical advisor, right? Yeah. That a lot of times it's it's doing public relations for your own firm or for your own organization. But I would say to help build in future talent is making those connections to your alma maters, to area universities, sharing those case studies, and getting ideas. Uh, We had uh, Don Roundtree, who has an agency in Atlanta, who worked with us, partnered with us on a class because he wanted the younger age group and their ideas about what would appeal to them for a particular client. So there's so many opportunities there uh, to get new ideas and to build into a future generation that's prepared for the workplace
0: What are some other things that came up in the research you mentioned before, or even just things that your students are working on that you want to plug?
2: Yeah, I think nobody expects uh, us to return to the post uh, pre-pandemic environment, right? The practitioners don't, educators don't. And I think I'm seeing a need and one of the findings was really ramping up onboarding and Mm -hmm. the mentoring. And that is so important. I think in the area of... um, Data insight and strategy, we found a lot of uh, need for increased student competency and drawing insight from data. And that's something we're working on. Um, But interestingly, none of us practitioners nor educators really felt overly confident in helping somebody else learn that. And so it's going to be a learning from experience. So the practitioners are not expecting the grads to be data scientists, but they want them to have ability to read spreadsheets and to start Mm. finding insight into those. Uh, I think one of the biggest things with ethical competencies, really, ethics came up in every chapter, and that was the practitioner saying they wanted more, and that was a priority for them, and it was also the educator saying this is a priority, so it's building in, and I think that alludes to some of your questions related to AI, data analysis, practices, all of those things become really, really critical, but also things like DEI uh, being a, an ethical social responsibility and building that into that. So there were a lot of uh, issues that came up and key points and a lot of recommendations for educators at, for applying these different things that came out of the study.
0: You know, it's, it's no secret that the industry, I think, by and large, does struggle with diversity, um, and and as, as somebody who is is working with the next generation of students, you know how does your department ensure that the pipeline is there so to speak and the, and that people are getting the opportunities that they should you know whether it's out in the workforce uh, or you know even the alumni like their next job I mean I mean how, what, what does uh, the university do do there in that area?
2: I think it's, again, that connection to alumni and staying in touch Mm -hmm. with them. Many of our alumni serve as internship supervisors. We have the advisory board, which uh, regularly meets with students each year. And it's just that connection and building those bridges that I think are so important, not just here at Southern, but across the the United States. Um, One of our members works, he said he's often in Africa building Mm -hmm different kinds of bridges there, helping uh, different governments and different areas. And so connecting those students and those alumni so that they learn from each other. We have mentoring and we have reverse mentoring that becomes so important.
0: So last question, Dr. Pam, how do you make the case for maybe a, a you know, a freshman or sophomore who's undecided on their major, and, and you think the PR department is a great place for them to be and a great industry for them to get to. Um, how do you make the case for them that they should be learning there?
2: I, I think back to my own decision to major in public relations, which... Well, somewhat serendipitous, but the idea that you get to do writing, you get to do speaking, you get to do such a variety in its application. So it's not just sit in a class and take tests. And they get that application with clients who really need their advice and help. So they can make a contribution as early as their junior year in some of their major classes. So I think that would be the case is, is getting out there and making a difference with public relations work.
0: Okay, Pam, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the PR Week. I'm going to throw the topic list over to you and Larkin here. He's going to tell us about some of the biggest marketing and communications news of the week. And you and Ewan, what are some of your favorite entries who were named on the PR Week Healthcare Award shortlist?
1: Yeah. So the, the PR Week Healthcare Award shortlist came out yesterday, as you might have seen. And it's actually it's a very stacked card this year. I think there's about 19 awards across categories for campaigns and personalities. Uh, you mentioned campaigns that I'm keeping an eye on. I think one to, to look out for is the Tampon Tax Back Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's from August and Solcom. Solcom's a relatively new agency on the scene. I believe it launched about last year. Um, that, that one is up for best in public affairs. Uh, the campaign is essentially an effort to reimburse consumers for uh, the luxury tax on feminine hygiene products, such as tampons, pads, and menstrual cups. Um, I'm, in, I'm excited to see how that fares. Um, I, I'm going to switch to on message here very quickly, but I think everybody should come and join us for the live event on May 21st in New York City. So you should go get your tickets now, folks. Um, And yeah, I think it's going to be competitive and I'm I'm excited to see who takes some of the awards. You may have missed a career as a promoter, a
0: (laughs) a concert promoter, an event promoter. Uh,
1: But I would second
0: that. We're going to have a great event for you between the conference and the awards this year. And it is uh, there are some really look. we all know that healthcare communications work is at the the top of the agenda since the pandemic started. and, uh, you know, th- th- this award shortlist reflects some of the great campaigns that have been done over the past few years. So I hope you check it out. Um, Ewan, tell us a little bit about Edelman's calendar year numbers that just came
1: out. Yeah, this was this was one of the big stories last week. So Edelman's global revenue slid 3.7% in terms of constant currency growth to $1.04 in 2023. Um, you know, I think it's pretty in line. It's I think we know it was a tough year for agencies all around last year. A lot of the holding companies have been reporting their results recently um and that's fairly in line uh, here with Edelman, uh, but the real talking point here for Edelman is the U.S., which was down nine point one percent to three hundred and or sorry six hundred and thirty nine million last year. Right. Um, and when I spoke with Richard Edelman, he told me that was primarily due to declines in practices where clients in the region made some budget cuts. That includes healthcare, technology, and financial services. Um, there were some bright spots though for Edelman. It had six percent growth amongst its top one hundred clients. Some of those clients include Microsoft, Starbucks, DP World, and HP. Um, it also picked up work from White Claw, parent Mark Anthony Brewing, and served as the primary communications agency for COP28 in Dubai. Uh, switching focus to some of the other global regions, EMEA was up 7.5, per, or sorry, 7.1%. That was boosted by 23.7% growth in the Middle East. Asia Pacific was up 1.7%, and Latin America increased nearly 30%. Um, what I think is interesting, you know, when I spoke to Richard, we were looking a little bit at the year ahead. Now we're already at the end of February, um, and he seemed quite bullish about the year ahead. Uh, he said he told me that he expects Edelman to return to growth in 2024, and said he doesn't expect any layoffs uh, at the firm this year as they're running a better business. So interesting to chat to him. Um, and like I said, you know, I think we all know it was a tough year for agencies across the board last year, but the feeling seems to be that clients are, you know, back ready to spend this year. A lot of the work was moved in-house last year, and and I mentioned some of the budget cuts that was. Certainly a factor, but you know it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And at least Richard Edelman thinks that um, his firm will be back to growth, and we'll see how how that pans out. And and for some of the big agencies, how that pans out.
0: Going to be very interesting, and uh, we will have the most comprehensive look at the agency sector coming your way in a matter of weeks now, uh, when we do PR Week's Agency Business Report 2024, including our rankings table. And there is some intrigue about who will be. At the top of the rankings table this year, so uh, be sure to look out for that. Ewan, uh, walk us through the the PR agencies and the in-house departments that are doing some work on telling the comeback story for the city of San Francisco.
1: Yeah, this was another great analysis from Chris, uh, Chris Daniels last week. Um, essentially, the gist is that I think everybody knows that San Francisco has you know taken more than its fair share of punches since the pandemic started. Um, but what Chris found is essentially that a new generation of tech town is kind of giving it the story to punch back, so to speak. Um, the companies that have invested in AR getting a lot of media coverage and uh, you know, kind of being billed as potential savers of the city and their PR agencies are obviously help telling those stories about the products they're rolling out and the innovation. Um, I would say that the city is still fairly behind on return to office policies. I think a lot of us know that over the past few years, but many of the major tech players such as Google, Amazon, Apple, and Salesforce are bringing people back into the office and filling up some of that vacancy that was present during COVID-19. Um, there also seems to be a bit more of an appetite for industry events, which I think is kind of funny to us because you know we're in New York, obviously, and I think that's been pretty strong for... Well, they're just getting back in some ways. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. and I,
0: I think the eagerness for events that people here had in early 2022 is taking root. the West Coast and and the Bay Area now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then PR agencies are obviously helping market those events. They're helping with event strategy and, you know, media relations and media trainings on that. Experts also told Chris that there's, you know, a lot of demand in the Bay Area for corporate comms and corporate affairs work. Organizations, um, you know, particularly tech companies uh, that tend to be very liberal are are really looking to understand how they can kind of navigate a lot of the societal issues that the city is facing today. Um, So it seems like it's very tech driven um and san francisco is you know on its way back to to writing the comeback story in pr um and the the tech players there are certainly playing a role in doing that
0: yeah and we're all keeping a close eye on the ai companies um and how they become a bigger part of the business sector out there okay uh who is you and tell us who is hormel's new chief communications officer
1: Hormel Foods' uh, new chief communications is Katie Clark. Um, Katie Clark, It's well, I should start by saying it's it's a pretty big move for Katie. Um, For those that don't know, Hormel's brands include some huge uh, names such as Planters, Skippy, Spam, and Applegate. Uh, Katie Clark was formerly the VP of communications for Mattress Firm. Before that, she was at PepsiCo in a role as director of communications for PepsiCo Beverages North America. That's obviously a massive role. Yeah. and in, in in stepping into Hormel Foods, she will report directly to the CEO, or the CEO Jim Snee, which is a great sign for comms. Um, she'll also be overseeing the company's global communications. And that remit includes external media relations, internal comms, uh, global impact comms, and corporate reputation as well.
0: And tell us a little bit about... Um the crisis response work that AT&T's communications department did last week after that big nationwide outage, tens of thousands of people at once getting their service dropped. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a huge one. I think, you know, It was obviously, I I mentioned a lot earlier that it was in a lot of the media cycle last week. I think there was a lot of eyeballs on this. So great to be able to kind of go back behind the scenes and see what the comms team was doing. Um, I spoke with a spokesperson and as you mentioned, Frank, this, this outage did affect tens of thousands of users last week. Um, I was told the comms took the lead on sharing updates with the company's various, uh, stakeholders, but they obviously worked with, you know, product and marketing as well too. This is, it's gotta be a well-oiled machine in times of crisis, but, uh, they really emphasized that speed was everything and that there was a really like a big focus on keeping customers mm-hmm. informed during this, which you know, that makes sense. Uh, these are the people that are being affected by it, but they went about it in a, a variety of different ways. They shared updates on the outage through its social media channels as well as its mobile app, uh, its website and virtual online assistant. I think this is a big one to uh, the next point that I'm going to bring about because maybe people don't think about this a lot in terms of a crisis response, but they told me that they, you know, a big focus was keeping its customer service and retail teams informed so that they could respond to customer calls. I and agree. Store I that was very important. I think that's huge because, you know, a lot of the times these, these frontline employees for there, they are the frontline of defense. And, you yeah. know, when you, when you have an outage, the first thing you do is, okay, customer service number, let me pick up and call and see what the problem is. And if they're not being told by the corporate side or the communication side, it's hard for them to respond to customers. So I think that was a key point And, uh, it was w- interesting to see them emphasize that, but it didn't just actually, this happened on Thursday, the service outage. It didn't, you know, with communications, we talk about it being an always on profession. This didn't end on Friday over the weekend, the companies sent text messages and emails to customers. I actually got one. I'm an AT&T user. I wasn't affected by the outage, but I got a text message apology over the weekend. Um, was it sufficient? Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to say. I wasn't actually impacted, so I can't see how bad. What it are
0: you going to use your $5 on?
1: <laughs> hard to say. Maybe I'll get you know lunch after this or something like that. Or Yeah. But they apologized for the inconvenience over the weekend and they offered, uh, as you mentioned, for potentially impacted Uh, accounts of $5 credit, which it said is uh, essentially the average of a cost of a full day of service. Um, And, you know, I saw a lot of people complaining about that online, too, on Twitter. I mean, like, you you know, social media people are going to complain about things, but you know, complaining about being reimbursed $5. Um, But I don't know legally if they were entitled to anything. I saw people talking about Mm -hmm. that. So that's interesting to to note as well, too. Um, The bill credit, uh, in the words of the spokesperson, was designed to reassure customers of our commitment to reliably connect them anytime and anywhere. Um, Then on Sunday, AT&T published a memo on its website that CEO John Stanky sent to employees. uh, And the spokesperson told me that move was designed so that our customers and the public generally could read it as well. Um, He, the CEO, apologized again in the statement. um, But he also, I think that was interesting is he might have seen some of the coverage on Thursday while this was happening, is that the FBI um, and the Department of Homeland Security got involved to make sure that this wasn't actually the result of a cyber attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And what Stanky's statement did was kind of confirm that the outage wasn't caused by a cyber attack. He said that in their initial review, they had found that it was due to some technical issues while the company was working to expand its network. Um, And then, you know, as well as saying, Generally, that they're taking steps to ensure that this doesn't happen again. I thought it was interesting to see that the the AT and T spokesperson told me that it's also because of this event. Or sorry, it's also evaluating how well it communicated during the incident. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, next time if something. You know, I think like when you're a telecommunications company, like stuff like this is going to happen. So it'll be interesting to see if and how the approach changes next time uh, something happens, and you know if there's any lessons there to be learned for the likes of you know, T-Mobile or Verizon or any other um, major brands and competitors that will likely, you know, something like this will Could happen, happen soon. The same yeah. Way.
0: Yeah. Indeed, we'll be keeping an eye out for it. Okay, just a few public service announcements. It is almost, uh, you know, actually it is because this podcast comes out on Thursday morning. It is your last chance to get your entries in for the PR Week Global Awards. The extended entry deadline is the end of February. You get an extra day in February and an extra day to get your entries in. And the event is May 15th in London. Uh, And you can also, Still, get your submissions in for PR Week's aforementioned agency business report. It's an annual industry staple. You want to be a part of it, uh, and you should just email abr at prweek.com. Few others, the PR Week U.S. Awards will be on March 14th in New York City. The Crisis Comms Conference will be on April 18th in Washington, D.C., the Healthcare Awards and Conference will be on May 21st in New York City. And the Women of Distinction event uh, will be uh, just about a week after that on May 30th. And you can find the details for all of those uh, on PRWeek.com. But that is about all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thank you to you and Larkin and Thank you to Dr. Pamela Orland Davis of Georgia Southern University for taking some time to join us this week. I think it was really informative about what the PR students at today are looking at. We will see you all next week for the next edition of the PR Week. Thank you for listening.